Conversations. Hello everyone, you're listening to Med Conversations. I'm Beck. And I'm Darvel. So today we're talking about urinary tract infections. Often seen, often learnt about, and it's likely that even though we say all these things every day, we're not doing it exactly right or according to the guidelines. So I thought it would be interesting to take a bit of a deep dive through the evidence surrounding urinary tract infections. Agreed, agreed. Take us to the case, Beck. All right, so our case today is um, in the setting of the Secure Geriatrics Rehabilitation Ward, where you receive a page to review not one but two patients. One needs assessment for head injury, and the other, you're told, requires chemical sedation. So, the patients. Firstly, there's Bill. He's an 85-year-old male from an aged care facility who's undergoing rehabilitation two months post-IM nail for a fractured neck of femur in the setting of severe Alzheimer's dementia. He is usually pleasantly confused, but his behaviour has been off the last two days. So this is a very standard page in this kind of ward. Yeah, if I had a dollar. Yeah, so your initial assessment. This patient, Bill, is in another patient's room, brandishing a fist at a nurse and threatening to call the police because she is trespassing in his house. Again, standard. (laughs) Urine is on the floor because Bill has pulled out his catheter. Another patient is carrying in the corner, holding his head. So what you do next is you quickly tune in to the Med Conversations Delirium podcast and deal with the immediate situation. <laughs> and then you put in a new IDC because, as I said, Bill's pulled out his one, and you do a septic screen on Bill. Everything's fairly unremarkable except the urine dipstick, which lights up like a Christmas tree with 3-plus nitrites and leukocyte esterase. Right, yeah. So what are, we, what are we talking about today? Take All us right. through. So, so we'll be focusing on the epidemiology epidemiology, diagnosis, and management of UTIs, mostly cystitis, but we will touch a little on pyelonephritis. Now, this is a big topic in paediatrics and also in gynecology. We're not going to go into detail there. We don't know anything about We do not. So we will focus on evidence-based investigating and efficient resource allocation, mostly in a hospital setting. Sexy, sexy topics I like. (laughs) They are. All right, so so our patient Bill, what are his risk factors for a UTI, Davo? Well, he is in an aged care facility. Pretty sure UTIs just come as part of the package there. And then IDC as well, the fact that he's got an uh, indwelling catheter. Yeah, and even if he didn't, he's 85 years old, so he's very likely to have a BPH, benign prostatic hypertrophy, which is also a risk factor for a UTI. So mm. that leads us nicely into epidemiology. As you would all know, they are very, very common, these urinary tract infections. They're the most common bacterial infection and also the most common nosocomial infection in all. So the people who get UTIs, more or less anyone, let's talk about the high-risk groups. Women, pregnant women, the very young, the very old, those with spinal cord injuries, catheters, diabetes, MS, HIV, AIDS, urologic abnormalities, those who are dehydrated. Now, I said women, but is there is there one case where men might be equally as susceptible as women? If I was to go on my own gut feeling, I would say uh, women are always at more risk because that's how we tend to practice. But I can see on this PowerPoint, it turns out that after the age of 50, men and women have the same risk. So that is news to me. You've taught me something today. And why do you, why do you think that might be? What changes after the age of 50? The prostate just goes wild. Yeah, so things sort of even out a bit after that because of the high prevalence of BPH in men over the age of 50. 
So if we go through the specific populations, sexually active women tend to have on average 0.6 UTIs per person year. What are the risk factors in this population? People having sex. Yep. Uh, people using spermicide while they're having sex. So nonoxonal 9, which is found on a lot of condoms. And uh, people with a past history of UTI, they're at more risk as well. Exactly. All right. And then the, the next group, the aged care facility residents. So all of these people are unfortunately at risk of IDC. Sorry, at, with a risk of IDC. They are at risk of IDC. And as a consequence of that, they're also all at risk of UTIs. So in men, particularly, you've got to be aware of people with a history of um, BPH. And in women, you've got to be particularly wary of people with atrophic vaginitis and estrogen deficiency, which I'm pretty sure Go most hand people in, hand. in aged care facilities are deficient in estrogen. And uh, other risk factors that we talked about before, diabetes is one because of that autonomic dysfunction, a neurogenic bladder that comes with spinal cord injuries or other neurological injuries, dementia, dehydration because they're not, because they have dementia, they often have dehydration, they're not drinking enough water, and just general functional impairment in both men and women, people that can't look after themselves so are more likely to have UTI. So you've got to have a really low threshold to to test for UTIs. We'll talk about that in a bit more in a second, I believe. Mm, okay, and we're also going to talk in more detail about asymptomatic bacteria, but let's just quickly talk about how common that is. So about one in five women or even greater than that proportion who are aged over 80 in the community have asymptomatic bacteria. So mm. you shouldn't be jumping up and down every time you see E. coli in the urine of a well 85-year-old woman. Mm, that's a very important stat to remember. 20% of women aged greater than 80 have asymptomatic bacteria. So not a UTI, they just have bacteria hanging out in their bladder. And the incidence of asymptomatic bacteria in diabetic patients is three to four-fold higher than in non-diabetic patients. So it's very common. And we'll talk about when you would treat that later on. Hint, basically never. (laughs) Okay, so that's epidemiology. Moving on to pathogenesis. More or less anything that increases the likelihood of bacteria getting into the bladder and staying there increases the risk of UTI. Beautifully put, Harrison. Beautifully put. Uh, Usually it's an ascending infection, so it usually goes from the outside in. And very rarely there can be hematogenous spread. So if you if you ever encounter a urine culture that's grown salmonella or staph aureus, it's really important to consider doing blood cultures. And the don't, guidelines... I would say don't consider, do. Do, do. <laughs> it's one of the golden rules of ID and something that comes up a lot actually in hospital practice. Just do blood cultures when you find them. They probably haven't come through the usual ascending route. They've probably got bacteria in their blood or at least you need to rule out bacteria in the blood. So the other one is candida that sometimes grows in the urine, and you've got to be suspicious of uh, candidemia, so candida in the blood when that happens. Of course, more common than that is uh, genital contamination from a from thrush, but you've got to you've got to worry about visceral dissemination. So probably worth doing a blood culture when you grow candida in the urine as well. All right. So now onto etiology, the the main bacteria that causes UTIs, Davor. E. coli. E. coli, E. coli, E. coli. So UTIs can be either uncomplicated or complicated, which we'll discuss in more detail later. Uncomplicated urinary tract infections tend to be caused by UTI, but if they're not, 
The second in line is Staphylococcus saprophyticus. It's particularly prevalent in young sexually active women. Which is a coagulase-negative Staphylococcus. Say that word again. Coagulase. And then other other gram-negative bacteria or Enterobacteriaceae are Klebsiella, Proteus, and Citrobacter for both uncomplicated and complicated. Just quickly on Proteus, so that's Proteus mirabilis is the full name, and that's one associated with uh, renal stone. So if someone complains of pain and then they grow Proteus in their in their urine, you can probably make a diagnosis of a probable kidney stone and do a CT scan to double-check. Is, is it that certain, that I'm, specific? No, you do the CT scan, but you just got to have a high threshold for suspicion for kidney stones. They, they grow them all the time. Well, I've actually had a case in a patient with someone who was uh, completely um, non-verbal, but then he grew proteus in his in his urine and then he had a bit of blood in there we noticed as well and then we did a CT scan because he couldn't communicate with us and we actually found he had kidney stones. There you go. All right, so so another interesting thing is uh, we'll be talking about dipsticks in a moment and on a urine dipstick you have a look at nitrites. The only kind of bacteria that grow nitrites are Enterobacteriaceae and Staph saprophyticus does not fit into that group. It's a gram-positive, as we were saying, coagulase negative. Mm. And the other one is Pseudomonas, which is a common causative organism in complicated UTIs. So no nitrites does not mean no UTI. No bugs, yeah. Now the clinical presentation. Anyone who's been in a hospital or seen a patient has probably seen many presentations of urinary tract infection, and you'll appreciate that it can either be very classic or very subtle. So the classic presentation for cystitis double. So burning and frequency, the questions I ask about, are you going to the toilet more than you usually do, and does it burn like fire? Yeah, so dysuria, frequency, urgency, nocturia, suprapubic pain is another one, um, which often people don't have, but if they do have it, it can be helpful in making the diagnosis. Then in pyelonephritis, the, the symptoms tend to be accompanied by those of cystitis, but on top of that, there can be fever with chills, flank pain, costovertebral angle tenderness, and if it's severe, nausea and vomiting. So that nausea and vomiting is actually a really important question to ask about because it's a differentiator between how you treat them. It's one of the defining features of severe pyelonephritis, am I right? You are right, and I, I perhaps mistakenly treated a patient with intravenous antibiotics for severe pyelonephritis the other day when she told me that she'd had one glass of wine and that's why she thought the vomiting was because of this UTI. And the story came out later that she'd actually had six shots in the space of an hour. <laughs> That'll do it. Um, so, so they're the classic signs and symptoms. But So just to make that clear, sorry. So if they've got nausea and vomiting, that is severe pyelonephritis and they need IV antibiotics as opposed to just oral antibiotics. So important question. Mm. Sorry. That's all right. Um, so, so in the very young and the very old, the signs and symptoms are often a lot more subtle. So as in our patient Bill, his uh, presenting complaint was punching another patient. So behaviour changes. Common symptoms. Um, so patients who can't give a history often also have a normal examination. So you're reduced to relying on pretest probability and the results of investigations. Mm. In contrast, in, in young women, the symptoms are often sufficient without any uh, investigations. So in a woman with dysuria and urinary frequency who has no change to vaginal discharge, which helps to rule out STDs, 
those women have a 96% pretest probability of UTI. So that's history for the win. I love it. Yeah, so dysuria, urinary frequency, and no change to discharge. I remember I actually had a question wrong on this in my third year medical exam. I didn't realize that old people presented so subtly and just with delirium. And that, that was the presenting complaint. And the answer was UTI is the most common cause. Wow. Just, You've come just, a long way. Just so other people don't make the same mistake. Okay, so, so we've talked about who gets UTIs, how they're caused, and what their clinical presentation is. Now, we're going to discuss a little bit on the topic of diagnosis, and that really depends on the population. So do you think you should culture everyone before you start antibiotics? No. It's a leading question, but no. <laughs> should you culture Bill's urine? Yeah. Why? Because I can't talk to him. He's too violent. <laughs> I don't know how I'd get to culture him. Well, his urine's all over the floor, okay, so there's a sample right. there. <laughs> uh, so you would culture his urine because he's from an aged care facility, and even if he weren't, you'd culture it because he's male, and even if he weren't male, because he's got an IDC. So we'll step you through the steps that you need to look at to decide who needs a culture prior to treatment. But first of all, let's start off with who doesn't need a culture. I would have a million dollars, significantly <laughs> less, but I'd have some money if I got a dollar every time a nurse handed me a pathology slip and asked me to sign it to request a urine MCS because a patient had smelly urine or cloudy urine. Mm. That is not an indication for doing urine cultures because it is not an indication for treatment. So you don't treat an asymptomatic bacteria. And therefore, if you're not counting cloudy or malodorous urine as a symptom, you don't need to do a culture on these patients. It's really important. It's just a waste of resources. It's a very common scenario. Another group where, who don't need cultures are those those women presenting classically that we were talking about before. If their history is that clear and they're young and well and they're not pregnant, they don't need a culture before antibiotics. Mm. So who does? So those at risk of what we call a complicated UTI. So remember that list of bugs that complicated UTIs can often have, and that list included pseudomonas, these are the people which meet this definition. So any anatomical or functional abnormality. So you see this in diabetes with um, autonomic neuropathy, people with neurogenic bladders, people with lots of kidney stones, pregnancy is apparently an anatomical abnormality, I guess so, (laughs) and immunosuppression. Yeah, so a lot of those things are about increasing urinary stasis. Mm. Then other people who need a culture before antibiotics, aged care facility residents, not always, but you should have a much lower threshold, particularly in those with an indwelling catheter. Then those who have recently taken antibiotics or who have failed treatment, patients who have recurrent infection, patients who've travelled internationally in the past six months, all of those patients are at risk of treatment failure or a resistant organism. organisms. So it's important to find out what that organism is. Just a bit of a pro tip when you're on the ground, uh, looking after these older patients have come in lots of times with infections or uh, aged care facility residents with lots of infections, make sure you go back and have a look at those old cultures and the sensitivities. Mm. Because if you don't, you can be caught out and miss a previous ESB or positive Klebsiella or something, and that needs an entirely different antibiotic management. You're just going to be wasting your time giving them trimethoprin or whatever. So go back and check the old ones. Mm, That's a good tip. Now, the last group who need cultures before antibiotics are those who you suspect have acute pyelonephritis. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the best urine samples to get. 
to be honest, we never really optimise these in a hospital situation. It's but, good to know that. But ideally, you want the sample to be taken first thing in the morning, and the reason for that is that the, the bugs have been growing in the bladder all night, usually, if they're not getting up all night. Which is also why we give trimethoprim at night, because we want to increase the amount of time that it spends in the bladder. Exactly. So first thing in the morning for a urine sample, midstream rather, rather than um, first catch. And in those who... Uh, a urine sample is difficult to obtain in, so particularly older older um, patients, particularly older women, then it's worth doing a, a condom catheter for men or an in-out catheter for women. Won't make you popular with the nurses, but will help you diagnose the UTI. There are, there are a lot of women who have successive contaminated urine cultures four or five times, and if you have a look at that and you see that on their, on their past history, there's almost no point trying to get a normal sample or in someone who's incontinent. Just do the in-out catheter and don't muck around waiting three days to find out that the specimen mm. was contaminated. Okay, so we've mentioned dipstick interpretation earlier on. This is, this is, everything you've written here is news to me. I think this is really important stuff. Go on. Okay, so so we talked about Bill having three plus nitrites and three plus leukocytes on his dipstick. What does that actually mean? So nitrites, I, I can see here, are very specific 95% of the time, but they're not sensitive, only 50% of the time. And that's probably, I guess, because it's missing uh, with people with saprophyticus and pseudomonas infections, which are the second most common cause of complicated and uncomplicated UTIs, respectively. Yeah, so... The, so nitrites are only produced by Enterobacteriaceae, which are a group of gram-negative bacteria. So specific, not sensitive. So it can be useful to rule in, not out. Then the next one, leukocyte esterase, or it just says leukes a lot of the time in the notes. So these are not very useful. 50 to 60% specificity and sensitivity. Now, there was a big meta-analysis done of about 70 publications that found that if both nitrites and leukes were positive... That test had 70 to 90% sensitivity. So it's nowhere near as good as the 96% sensitivity of a good history. Exactly, in a particular population Take group. Take robots. <laughs> so despite, despite this reasonable sensitivity of the double positive, the nitrites and leukes, um, there are also many studies that show that a, um, a negative dipstick is not adequate to rule out a UTI. And what I see in practice is it really depends on the pretest probability in a patient who's coming in with clear symptoms of a UTI who has a negative dipstick, I won't um, I won't stop investigating or, or treating for that. So what I've seen before is a patient who had literally white urine and a negative dipstick, no Ooh. leukes, no nitrites, and um, and we we sent it off to the lab anyway, and she grew I think it was something like eight hundred leukes. So you can't trust them. All right, so that's the dipstick. And now we're going to talk a little bit about when a positive urine culture doesn't necessarily mean a UTI. And there are three situations that can cause this. Asymptomatic bacteria, colonization, and contaminants. So asymptomatic bacteria, that's the one where the nurses give you the smelly smelly urine and ask for you to culture it. But if there's no symptoms, that makes it asymptomatic bacteria, even if it comes back with white cells greater than 10 Colonization is when you do grow a bug, but the white cells are less than 10. I've been guilty of treating that accidentally myself before. Always check the, the white cell count as well as the, the um, what's been grown. And then contaminants is the final one. So we tend to use squamous cells as a predictor of how contaminated the urine catch. Is that a good, is that a good test of contamination? 
Well, our, our hospital uses that, and I'm not sure what evidence that's based on, but when I was having a look, I could actually only find one study um, investigating how useful that is, and, and that was a study of 105 women, and they found that squamous cells was not a good predictor of contamination. But you look at the bugs as well. Like There's some bugs that are very commonly uh, contaminants. So the classic is coagulase-negative staphylococcus, other than saprophyticus, and that's like staph epidermitis, which sounds like it grows on the skin, and it does. Group B, streptococci, enterococci, lactobacilli, they're all likely to be contaminants. So that's what you can look at as well. Another thing is how many have grown. So if there's less than 10 to the power of 2 colony forming units or CFU um, per mil, then that's probably a contaminant because there's not enough bacteria. Also, if you get mixed flora, that's probably not a contaminant. Is a contaminant, rather. Sorry, it probably is a contaminant. All right. And interestingly, E. coli, which I always assumed was just a contaminant because it must have come sort of from that local area, is not a contaminant. Not a contaminant. Straight from the poo into the urine, it's gone. Nicely put. (laughs) Okay, so the next way of investigating is with imaging. So who needs upper tract imaging and why? So upper tract imaging that includes things like renal tract ultrasound is what we most commonly use. So people that basically are very ill or have failed their treatment. So persistent symptoms after two, three days. They're unstable in some way. If they've got a history of renal colic. People with diabetes. I wouldn't do it in everyone with diabetes, but if they have diabetes plus they're failing their treatment and probably consider it. A history of previous anatomic abnormalities, so you can look if they've had previous urologic surgery. People with immunosuppression, you'd be more likely to do it as well. And people with uh, repeated episodes of pyelonephritis or urosepsis. So just complicated patients where you're worried there might be something else going on. And that's because you're looking for what, Beck? So you're looking to see if there is actually an underlying anatomic abnormality that's predisposing them to these complicated infections, or if there's something that might delay response to treatment so if there's something in there like stones papillary necrosis or obstruction and you could also be looking for an abscess or a perinephric collection so the back uh, the bacteria are walled away and the antibiotics aren't getting to them the other thing i've seen people say is that oh we need to do the imaging to diagnose the pyelonephritis how on the money are they there not very and I, i always feel sorry for our radiologists reporting on these who always say as their last line of the conclusion that CT is not a sensitive test for diagnosis of pyelonephritis. So how do we diagnose it? Uh, Clinically. Clinically, it's better. So out of the investigations that we have available to investigate these anatomical abnormalities, CT is the most sensitive, but use it sparingly. It's a pretty big dose of radiation, and sometimes you need to use contrast as well. Ultrasound... We should use contrast. We should use contrast. Um, Ultrasound is often used, but it is often normal. If they're pregnant, MRI is a good option, and then... The weird world of nuclear medicine has much to offer in this area as well. DMSA is a good test. So that's investigations for you. So to summarise, dipstick is not 100% sensitive or specific, but can be helpful. Do cultures if the UTI could be complicated, could be pyelonephritis, or if the patient is at risk of treatment failure. Check past ones as well. And check the past cultures as well and sensitivities. Remember that a positive culture could mean infection, but could also mean asymptomatic bacteria, contamination, or colonization. So that's investigations. Now we're moving on to differentials. So these are symptomatic differentials. A young lady comes to you complaining of dysuria. What else could she have? Obviously, gynecological issues are common. Vaginitis, uh, urethritis from an STI, um, or pelvic inflammatory disease. 
And then there's structural abnormalities like urethral diverticulae or strictures, renal stones we talked about before. So look for blood in the dipstick or in the urine MCS. And in men, it's all about the prostate. Do mm. they have a- acute bacterial prostatitis or indeed a chronic prostatitis? So these men might have fever, chills, malaise. They'll generally be quite a lot sicker than your standard UTI. They could have pelvic and perineal pain, which can help to localise it, and even right. some obstructive symptoms. So pelvic and perineal pain. I, have to, I don't actually ask about that. That's a good question. So this, unfortunately, is one of those yeah, situations where DRE is very helpful. And if you're experienced, you might be able to tell that it's an edematous and tender prostate. Tender, you probably don't have to be that experienced. But edematous, I feel like you do. <laughs> Um, and the other things that I've seen done as well is uh, renal tract ultrasound can sometimes help as well because you can give the volume of the prostate. If it, if it's really big, it's more likely to be inflamed. And also PSA, which is kind of useful in younger people, I guess, because older people are more likely to have an elevated PSA anyway. But a young person with an ele- elevated PSA prostatitis is not an unreasonable cause. So I think the, the corollary... The corollary is also um, also important to discuss here. If you were planning on doing a PSA to see if somebody had BPH or prostate cancer, then don't do it when they have prostatitis because yep. it will be falsely high. Wait till it gets better. Yep. Um, and obviously, as with the women, urethritis can present similarly to a UTI, so chlamydia, gonorrhea. You have to do a bit of a sexual history and rule, rule these things out as well. Now on to treatment. We got there in the end. So... The mainstay of treatment is, of course, antibiotics. So, given it night, this is not something I often see done. It's always 0800, give the antibiotics. You've got to give it at night to give it time to stagnate in the urine and do its job. What about urinary alkanizers? Are they useful? Say that word again. Urinary alkanizers. I don't know what they are, but urinary alkalinizers, like <laughs> ural, can be, can be really useful for symptom control. The evidence base isn't wonderful, but there is some evidence there. People seem but, to like it. But you, you shouldn't use them with quinolones like ciprofloxacin. Do you know why? Uh, it causes crystalluria. crystalluria. So. Yeah, crystalluria can, can occur. I don't know if, if it necessarily causes that every time, but it's a risk. Yeah. So try to avoid it. So then lifestyle measures as well. So high fluid intake, just flush the UTI out, can help. I don't know if there's any evidence, but it makes sense. And then cranberry... And com- complete emptying as well. Oh, yeah. So you'd want to avoid stasis. Yeah, yeah. Cranberry products, no evidence. They're delicious, but they don't work, as far as we know. Okay, so so we said antibiotics. Which antibiotics? And this really depends on where you live. So trimethoprim is the mainstay. Yeah, and um, and basically it depends on the, the group as well. So we'll talk about the Australian therapeutic guidelines, but for our, our listener in Guatemala, who we noticed on our statistics recently, <laughs> you might want to look up your own local guidelines because they can be different. Um, and certainly it's quite different in, in the United States as well. So in Australia, uncomplicated cystitis in a non-pregnant woman, trimethoprim, 300 milligrams orally for three days. We won't give the doses. Um, pregnant women, cephalexin in men, trimethoprim, but you want to treat them for seven days. So longer in men. Longer in men, they have a longer urethra. It works. All right, so pyelonephritis or relapse UTI are both treated in the same way. If it's mild and that's low fever, no nausea and vomiting, then you just treat with trimethoprim, augmentin, duofort or cephalexin, which are all um, equally reasonable first-line antibiotics for 10 to 14 days, so a much longer course. 
if it's severe and what makes it severe, Davo? So the nausea and vomiting, important question. Yeah, and also high fevers generally. So yeah. you give gentamicin and amoxicillin and, and, and then you might go on to orals after that. So that's IV, gentamicin, amoxicillin. Good. If it's multi-drug resistant, gram negative. So this is your ESBL positive klebsiellas, they're the one I've seen. So there we go, meropenem. Yeah. So standard. Yeah. All right. And catheter-associated UTIs have their own treatment regimens as well. So it's important to know that after a few days, almost everyone who's got an IDC has bacteria and pyuria, that is white cells in the urine. So if you can, get a sample from a new catheter or a clean catch. You want to treat these for 7 to 14 days as well, like with pyelonephritis. And you've got to change the catheter. You have to change the catheter. If you don't change the catheter, you risk um, treatment that's only transient because there's poor penetration into the biofilm of bacteria that grow over the catheter. Mm. Or worse, super infection with resistant organisms. Antibiotics uh, resistance is becoming a bigger and bigger problem every day. I'm terrified of it. So please change the catheter. (laughs) So when do you consider giving amoxicillin rather than trimethoprim? So that was a very open-ended question. There's a variety of answers to that, but I think the one you're getting at is something that I, I never really thought about before, and that's that people who have cardiac issues that make them at an increased risk of infective endocarditis need to be covered for enterococcus as well. So trimethoprim doesn't cover enterococcus, but amoxicillin, um, uh, piperacillin, tazobactam, or vancomycin will all cover that. And that's in people who've got a prosthetic valve or they've had infective endocarditis before, or they've had particular kinds of congenital heart disease, rheumatic heart disease in high-risk patients. Best to look it up, mm. but just something to keep in the back of your mind. I feel like that would be a really easy thing to miss. So, yeah, try and remember. And now onto asymptomatic bacteria. I mentioned earlier that there are some groups that you should treat for this. Do you know who they are? So pregnant women, uh, patients who have urological procedures coming up, and renal transplant recipients, just because the outcomes can be disastrous if you don't treat it. So give them some trimethoprim or whatever else, but don't bother with anyone else, even if the white cells are greater than 10. And one study showed that if you treat the bacteriuria, it just recurs again later anyway, but this time with a vengeance and resistance. Yeah, resistance. We're worried about it. Okay, so follow-up. Usually nobody needs follow-up if it's an uncomplicated lower UTI. And if, and if the symptoms resolve, you want to do a repeat MCS after antibiotic therapy for pyelonephritis, or if symptoms have persisted beyond 48 hours of an appropriate antibiotic therapy, or if they recur within a few weeks. So we call that complicated UTI, and that does need another culture and further empiric treatment with other antibiotics. Again, easy thing to, to forget. Pop it on the end of your discharge summary before you transfer that patient to a gym. Give them a date when they should do a repeat urine MCS. All right, so prevention. Um, Prevention can be uh, done by avoiding catheters where possible or trial avoiding patients as soon as it's appropriate. Yeah. Where where it's possible, an in-out catheter rather than an indwelling catheter. And where they do need a long-term IDC, changing them to an SPC can help lower the risk. All right, so behaviour change. Contraception without spermicides, drinking more water, Wiping front to back, some people say. There's no convincing evidence <laughs> that, but nothing to lose. That makes sense, I guess. There's also no evidence for early postcoital voiding, but I don't think many people have studied that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Imagine the RCT. Um, so cranberry products, probiotics, just a way that people can make money. There's no convincing evidence for the use of these to prevent so UTIs. Delicious, Hexamine hippurate, which is called methanamine hippurate outside Australia, 
um, has been poorly studied, but there's a suggestion that it might be useful in a short course in patients who don't have any renal tract abnormalities. And the mainstay of prevention for which we have a good evidence base is antibiotics. Hmm. So I'm surprised by this. We actually do give consider antibiotic prophylaxis in women uh, who have frequent symptomatic infections. So just, you know, your run-of-the-mill girl that seems to get a lot of UTIs um, more than three years is a candidate for trimethoprim prophylaxis. It's a smaller dose, 150 milligrams at night. And sometimes you can also kind of give it intermittently, so have it after sex. Yeah, so if you give it um, two hours after intercourse, that's um, about as effective. So I'm dying. What happened to Bill? Tell me the... This is why I've sat here this whole time. All right, so we put that new catheter specimen, the new catheter in, and the specimen grew E. coli. We treated him with trimethoprim for seven days. His behavior improved. The other patient with the head strike got better. He didn't punch anyone else. We gave him some more appearance, and then he had a successful trial of void, thus preventing the high risk of further UTIs in the future. And then he walked out of the aged care facility, a new man in his Ferrari. He ran... A marathon the following. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Thanks for listening, Thanks everyone. Thanks so much, Beck. Appreciate it.